Hi, I'm Bernard Leung, and you may know me as the executive who gets subsidized by venture capitalists on bicycles, travel tips, and coffee. And in my spare time, I want to know whether the numbers and narratives in China are really real. You're listening to Analyze Asia, a weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology, and media in Asia. And today, I have John Atman, Editor-in-Chief from TechNote and host of China Tech Talk. Welcome, John, and it's great to have you back here again. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. So we have just closed 2018, and I think there's a year of reflection. It's also the year where the Chinese government is really setting in to regulate the Chinese tech companies, and of course, the pending trade war between U.S. and China and its impact to the tech community between both U.S. and China, and may impact the rest of the world. So, since our last conversation, what have you been up to, and what are your reflections for 2018 then? So 2018 was a pretty big year for TechNode. Started off, I wouldn't say like particularly strong, but I think going into the end of the year, we've built up a really good team of writers, and we、uh, recently hired a managing editor, former editorial director at Sixth Tone, Colin Murphy. He's now in charge of、uh, pretty much all of our editorial operations. So for us, that's really a big deal because we're moving into a monetization model. We're exploring a few different options, and we really needed to bring someone on board who, on the one hand, has a bit more experience in terms of "quote unquote" traditional journalism, but then on the other hand, has experience improving the overall quality of publications and working with young writers to do so. That's kind of what we had coming into 2019, and so 2019 is going to be a big year for us because you know we're going to be launching a members-only subscription newsletter, as well as we're going to be launching a Technode branded event. We're going to have it in Shanghai. We're still kind of putting some of the pieces together, but it's going to be really, really exciting, and we're hoping to really kind of gather together some of the best minds locally and internationally to talk about what's happening in China. But when we look at the broader picture of what's happening in technology, I think that Bernard, your assessment was pretty close to the truth in the sense that you know the government is becoming much more heavy-handed when it comes to regulation. But also, I think that it's partly just the market cycles as well. You know, peer-to-peer is a good example where once the government did start actually like paying more attention, peer-to-peer very quickly began to not do so well. But that's also just because the model, the business model of many of these peer-to-peer lending companies, just Was not sustainable, and you know maybe we can talk about some other unsustainable business models later on in the podcast. But definitely, like if we look at regulation in terms of like bike rentals, for example, that definitely played a big role in some of the problems that these companies had. And I think that the trade war itself—I mean, it is interesting to see what's happening, right? I mean, Apple recently wanted to lay most of their revenue problems on top of the trade war. To be honest, I mean, I haven't seen any numbers to corroborate the connection between, you know, consumers buying smartphones or their willingness to pay extra for like a premium smartphone and the tension between the United States. However, of course, there is nationalistic issues. For example, so after the arrest of Huawei's CFO. A lot of people were very supportive of Huawei and not very supportive of Apple because you know Huawei represents China and Apple represents the United States. So definitely, you know, you can see that there are some knock-on effects. And the Chinese government recently announced that they're going to be adding in some stimulus to encourage people to buy household appliances and other things, so that to make sure that the economy keeps going. So there are some signs that consumer confidence is lower and that people are less willing to buy stuff these days. So this is where I want to start the conversation today on what we really want to discuss in the podcast. I want to discuss how numbers are presented by various prominent companies in China, and 
followed by their narrative for not matching up. So before we get to the overarching team, which we actually have pre-planned before this conversation, I would like to start with three stories. I think one of the things that caught my eye last year was the bike rentals startups collapse with Ofo and Mobike. When people talk about bike sharing, and I'm just being pedantic, we call it bicycle rental. The companies emerge in the open. They were here as the next big things after the right-hailing startups like Didi and Quidi. So last year, there was a bloodbath. First, Mobike got acquired by May 20 and Ping at US $3.8 And then Ofo is now in dire straits. I think the founder of Ofo Daiwei is now in the China's blacklist. So what is interesting to me is they have been hailed as these next big things and they have all these numbers on revenue, business model, usage. Did they actually report the things that match the reality that they were painting to the press and the investors, which also led to what happened to this bloodbath happening then? Yeah, I mean, so at the end of the day, both companies were pretty coy about their numbers. They would sometimes release numbers about, you know, overall usage, but they would never really say, you know, how many bikes that they had on the road. They would never really give any like real data about actual usage. So they might say, okay, in a certain number of cities and we have a certain number of users and, you know, bikes are being used this often and they're traveling this far and we've helped to leave this many traffic jams and here's our AI solution with all the big data and things like that. But when it comes to, you know, actual business model, you know, the amount of capital investment that they had to make in terms of making the bikes and then deploying them, you know, that was never really made clear. And I think that now we know why is because those, those numbers never really looked that good. You know, there was a lot of discussion when Ofo and Mobike first started getting popular about what their actual business model is. And I think that the conclusion of many was that, well, their business model is collecting deposits. And as we can see, you know, with Ofo's recent problems, up to about 12 million people for Ofo were waiting in line online for their deposits. Some people showed up at their office to even demand that they get their deposit back. But you think about 12 million people and the deposits started off for Ofo at uh, 99 renminbi. After the company began to have a bit more problems, they raised that deposit to 199 renminbi, right? So anywhere between, you know, 100 RMB to 200 RMB deposit over 12 million people. That's a lot of money. And so, you know, there's a lot of theories about how that money was being used. The governments across the country in China banned both companies from using the deposits for operations, mandating that they put the deposits into, you know, special bank accounts that can never actually be touched. And so if you look at, again, revenue and profitability, really, the only thing that ever really made any sense was, okay... Either they're using the deposits to pay for operations, which technically they're not supposed to, but they probably did, or you know the deposits and the interest on the deposits is the only way that they're really making money. Because you look at you know the amount of bikes that they had on the road and the average usage as calculated by some people, it never made any sense. I mean, like one bike had to be used almost all the time for it to actually begin to pay for itself. Especially if we look at you know Mobike's bikes. And so the thing is, like Mobike. It's not quite clear how exactly they were doing. Obviously, that they weren't doing well. By all accounts, they were doing better than Ofo. So with Mobike in particular, it didn't seem like they were bought because they were having a hard time. I think that, you know, Meituan's purchase of Mobike had a lot more to do with their IPO, and Pony Ma really pushed through that deal. And so with Mobike and Ofo, you know, you look at the number of bikes on the road, how much they cost to produce, and the amount of money that users are being charged for them and the business model deposits aside just never made any sense. So the strategy that 
mobile and offer use were very similar to the past startups, which is to burn cash, gain market share, and hope to be the last man standing. But it didn't work for them as compared to the others before them, like for example, right hailing and group buying. Where did these bike sharing companies actually went wrong? That's the thing. I mean, because you look at ride hailing and group buying are two really good examples. Number one, the biggest investment for those companies is going to be in software. And in software is awesome because it's scalable, it's replicable. And once you make the initial investment into the development, then you can just, you know, copy paste and use the same lines of code in other instances. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, Silicon Valley has been about software for a long time. And a lot of venture capital really only looks at software because hardware is capital intensive. You have to invest a lot of money, not only in the design of the product, but then, of course, the production of the product. In the case of bike rentals, then you had to, you know, invest money in the deployment of the products. And then, of course, in the maintenance of the products as well. Put all of that together, and that's a lot of money. So you can burn a lot of cash with user subsidies when it comes to ride hailing and with group buying, because at the end of the day, you're creating a platform, you hire engineers to build and maintain that platform, and then a lot of your money is going to be going to the subsidies. Whereas with bike rentals, I mean, there was just so much money that you had to spend on just the product itself. This is kind of the thing. I think that, you know, on the one hand, of course, using technology entrepreneurial thinking is great in terms of applying it to how you organize a company or how you manage a team. But at the end of the day, there are just certain areas it's just going to cost money to actually do. And software and its scalability is just not going to be all that helpful. And it doesn't help. They didn't merge when they should have, right? (laughs) So this is the thing. If we look at Mobike and Ofo, number one, they were just very, very different companies. Mobike was founded by ex-Uber employees, you know, after DD bought Uber China, some of the Uber people stayed in DD and some left. And some of the people that left went on to make Mobike. And so these are people with a lot of entrepreneurial experience. And, you know, they're coming from a company that is known for its aggressive culture. In particular, its aggressive product culture as well. And so you look at the product innovation that Mobike had. I mean, whether or not that was justified, whether or not at the end of the day, that was a good business model is a different question. But like Mobike, they were very serious about their products. I mean, they released, I think, a total of four different models of bikes with slightly different use cases. And the last one that they released, I don't think they're making any new models these days. But the last one they released was just like this fantastically usable bike. The seat was very adjustable. It was very easy to use. And it wasn't all that heavy compared to their previous bikes. And all of their bikes, I mean, had longevity and sustainability in mind. And so rather than using tires with rubber tubes inside, you know, filled with air, it was basically just rubber all the way through. And, you know, there was a chainless bikes, all this stuff where you look at a bike and the points of failure and the amount of maintenance you would have to do to fix all of these things, they were able to address all these problems. And so they had a really very clear idea about what kind of product that they wanted to create. Whereas Ofo, Ofo was college students. And the original idea behind Ofo was that, hey, we're going to make literally a bike sharing platform where student A, you have your bike and you're in class from 8 to 12. And then, you know, between 8 and 12, someone else can use your bike and you get money from it. And that's great. But if we look at the market at the time, you know, people were looking for the next transport play. And so what happened was that uh, Ofo, they were approached by investors. And, you know, I think they just got a little bit carried away. 
So I guess now what you have is the so-called bicycle apocalypse. And I think I saw one interesting <laughs> picture in the internet where there was this man and all the bikes were being hidden underground. And then someone was saying that 2,000 years from now, when people are doing archaeological digs, they'll be wondering why these people were so crazy putting bicycles inside these archaeological remains of the day. Mm. So it may just reflect the sign of the times of being crazy. I want to get to the second story. And it's the fake reviews accusations to Ma Feng Wo by Xiaosheng BB, which I think is by this person by the name of Ding Zichuan and Hurei Data from Shenzhen. I think the story is very well covered. You guys have done a very good job in covering the story and talk about fake reviews. But what I want to start is the story of Ma Feng Wo, an up-and-coming travel site in China that rivals Sea Trip, which is the TripAdvisor of China, and China and many others. So can you give an introduction to the story to my audience on what actually happened? Yeah, so... Ma Feng Wu, they've been around for quite some time and never really got that big. They did receive a fairly large investment in 2017. And the funny thing is, is that this report actually came out as they were hoping to raise about $300 million. That would bring their valuation up to $2.5 billion USD. And one of their investors is Temasek out of Singapore. And this is one of those things where I think that the big question is, you know, how is this replicable? And I think you really have to look into the actual methodology to discover that actually what these researchers did is a bit difficult to do with other companies, right? And so just now we were talking about the bike sharing, we're talking about numbers. Here with Ma Feng Wu, we're talking about text. So text in the sense of reviews. So text that's on the website itself. And so what uh, Xiaosheng BB and Hooray Data did is they used textual analysis to look at the comments on Ma Feng Wu using Python and uh, NLP algorithms to compare text reviews on Ma Feng Wu to other places, including Ctrip, Elong, Dianping, Agoda, and Yelp. So they used uh, Google Translate to translate English into Chinese. And what they found was that like 85% of, of the data that they pulled from Ma Feng Wu was plagiarized to some degree. And the funny thing is, is according to them, they raised the barrier actually quite high. What they did was that they said that if there was like a small difference, like 20% difference in the sentence or in the wording, then it wouldn't count. It wouldn't count as a hit. And so even with this high barrier, according to them, 85% of the reviews on Ma Feng Wu were plagiarized, copy and pasted from other websites. I can help a little bit here with the explanation of the technology because when I used to be doing machine learning and pattern recognition in the Human Genome Project, what is called similarity matching is to make sure that the text that you actually try to compare has to have a certain threshold that you need to set. And the fact that you mentioned that Hooray Data and Xiaosheng PB actually put a pretty high threshold means that these guys, if they have ever decided to actually do these fake reviews, were very sloppy. Coming back to here is that the key team I like about this story is the use of big data and software algorithms to match the data that's scrapped from Malphone Wall sites against the other sites. Now, let me flip this question around. Doesn't this actually show that this is the first time you see in China an interesting application of technology to aid investigative journalism at scale? Yeah, I think that you're making a great point. And that was my response when we first broke this story as well, is that finally we're getting some real journalism from Chinese technology. I mean, you know, for us, our approach to news when it comes to Chinese tech is that, especially when it's a rumor, we try to make sure that we're making it very clear that readers should take it with a grain of salt. And that's, that's really kind of the overall stance that anyone should take. 
when they're reading something from a Chinese news source, because there's a lot of nonsense and there's a lot of things that happen in the background. Either someone's you know pay for play, so someone's paying for good coverage, maybe someone's paying for bad coverage of a competitor. But in this case, it was really cool because you know like was an actual investigation. At the end of the day, I mean, the timing I think was really interesting because you have to wonder, Ma Fenghua, they were in the middle of trying to raise their next round of funding, and then this story broke. So the timing is a bit suspect, or it could just be that Xiaosheng BB and Hooray Data they had a thing for Ma Fenghua, and they wanted to kind of get in the way of that funding, or it could have been that they were somehow backed by a competitor or something like that. At the end of the day, we don't know. But the point is, is that you know, finally, we actually have like a real. Actual investigation, not just accusations, not just insinuation, but actual hard data showing that this company was not doing what it said it was doing. And of course, this is interesting because you have seen that in the past few years in journalism, one of the interesting things is that one outlet doesn't break the story. In fact, they work with each other. For example, for the Panama Papers, right? Guardian actually worked with New York Times, worked with the Spiegel in Germany, where they can actually. Look at the big troves of data, and looking at this case was that you just have one blogger and maybe a team of data scientists that actually go and analyze this data, which makes it really interesting to see how technology can actually use in news scale. Exactly, which I don't think people don't really appreciate that. So Ma Fengwu was raising around with prominent investors like Temasek, which is in my hometown. So does this scandal actually derail them from getting the investment? Yeah, that's a good question. It looks like the last round that they were able to secure was in 2017, so December of 2017. I'm looking at、uh, IT Zuza, which is a Chinese version of Crunchbase or CB Insights, where they track all of the most recent fundings and things like that. And it looks like they actually did not complete that last round of funding right before this port was released. So it is a well-known fact that most Chinese internet players go through gladiatorial fights between different players, and then this is well documented in Li Kaifu's recent book. AI superpowers, and of course, there are factors such as using fake data and reviews, using zombies in Chinese we call Jiangshi, and maybe which is Sui Jun. Does the investors really scrutinize the numbers and do their due diligence for these factors to be at work? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that you know FOMO is probably a lot stronger in China than it is in the Valley because. Things happen so quickly here that if you don't get on board as quickly as possible. Well, then you might just miss the boat completely. So you know, I don't have any inside information as to you know the overall approach that investors have, but it's one of those things. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, you can just fake these numbers, right? And so, how the data is actually being presented to investors, I think, is a really interesting question. And of course, you know, it's not until companies go public, in particular in the United States or in Hong Kong, that we actually get an accurate picture of what's going on with these companies. So you know, the degree to which investors are scrutinizing. The data and the numbers as being presented, I think, is a really, really interesting question. If you look at the case of Ofo, for example, one of the early investors got out very, very quickly. He was one of the managing directors of Jinsha Jiang, so GSR, and he was one of the early investors. One of the investors that I believe really kind of pushed Ofo to expand rapidly, and also pushed Ofo to kind of expand into the low cost, low price model that allowed them to expand so rapidly. But you know, he was one of the big voices calling for a, a merger between Mobike and Ofo, and then when that didn't happen, he just exited as quickly as possible, and so. From that, we can kind of see that he had some pretty decent visibility into their numbers, and was like, you know, this is just not going to work. 
so we come to the last story. I saw the link actually given by your co-host, Matthew Brennan, which is on Luckin Coffee's recent leaked financials by this website called Career In. And I actually went through it. They also published some very interesting reports on these coffee startups from the Goldman Sachs Consumer Insights reports as well. It's really great because I have been reading so much Mandarin now, I'm beginning to understand most of the business terms now in Chinese. So Luckin Coffee has went from a highly profitable startup to now a loss-making one. The leak financials, I think is interesting. And maybe I should just put a few stats up and then they'll be easier. I think the first is the average selling price per coffee, which they claim is about 24 yuan or renminbi, approximately about US $3.50. And with 85 million cups of coffee, you probably should get about 2.04 billion renminbi. That's equivalent to US 300 million. But instead, they only got about 760 million yuan, which actually only goes up to about 111 million. That makes their average selling price US $1.30, which is actually one third of the current price of what they claim that they have sold. So it's very different from what they say and what the reality reflects. And of course, the most interesting part of the leaked financials I thought was interesting was for every one coffee a Chinese consumer buy, they get 1.5 coffees for free. So here's my problem now. The numbers from these startups and the reality that they present if the financials weren't leaked is so different. How do you really access these fast-growing startups in China? Yeah, I mean, the luck-in numbers, I think, are absolutely fascinating because I think that you touched upon it just now. But I mean, like, one of the things that Chinese companies are really good at, like really, really good at, is massaging numbers in the sense that, you know, yeah, fine, the price of a cup of coffee from luck-in is 21, 24, or 27 RMB. But then they offer all of these kind of discounts. And the way that they structure the discounts as a consumer, personally, it's a bit awkward, but I think that it really kind of helps them in terms of how they massage those numbers, right? Because like, they're not saying, oh, you know, we're giving out a certain number of discounts that are costing us this much over this period of time. Instead, you're just doing like a buy two, get one or buy five, get five. I'm not sure if they still have it, but they used to have a buy 10, get 10. And so in effect, like the buy five, get five, the 10 for 10, is that you're basically paying half price. But then the way they do it as a consumer is very annoying because you purchase coupons, basically. Uh, You purchase coupons for coffee. And so you can purchase a coupon for a 21 RMB cup, a 24 or a 27 RMB cup. And basically what happens is that coupon is only valid for that range of drinks, right? And so you can use a 27 RMB voucher for a 24 RMB cup of coffee and so on and so on, but you can't use a 21 RMB voucher for a cup of coffee that's 24 RMB. And so it's a bit convoluted. As a consumer, it's quite annoying, but basically you just buy vouchers. And so if you buy two vouchers, you get one voucher. You buy five vouchers, you get five vouchers and so on and so on. And so the way that they've structured this deal, to be honest, now it all kind of makes sense the way that they're doing it in terms of how they're presenting numbers to investors, but then also, you know, how they're counting all of this, because it's easy to massage numbers if you're going to say this. Also, if you look at the number of stores that they have, you know, they keep saying, oh, we have like 1,500, 1,800, and now we have like 2,000 or whatever, but they don't actually tell you, you know, what type of stores they're actually counting. Because you got to remember that Luckin, in particular, is a delivery company. If we have any listeners from the United States, they're like Domino's. Domino's in the United States, they only do delivery. 
So in terms of storefront, the only area that Domino's needs is a place to make the food and then a counter for pickup, and then they'll just deliver everything else. Whereas with Luckin, they actually have three different types of stores. One is, of course, the typical storefront that you might see like at a Starbucks or some other coffee shop. Another is a pickup-only place where they might do some deliveries from, but it's mostly for pre-order, and then people can go pick it up. So very similar to the Domino's pickup method. And then they have the dark stores, which is fulfillment-only. And so are they counting those dark stores? Are they counting those fulfillment-only places as stores? Are they counting the pickup-only places as stores? And you know what? They probably are. I mean, there's no way they can have these types of numbers if they're only talking about the regular kind of coffee shop stores that most people associate with this, right? And so, again, they're not lying, right? But they're just not being clear about what they mean when they say, we have 2,000 stores that we opened. And I think we learned a little bit from all three stories about how Chinese companies actually operate. But from your perspective, what can we learn from the way numbers and narratives are presented for Chinese fast-growing companies? What are the major lessons we can now learn given that we just went through these three interesting stories on three different groups of people doing different things? Well, I mean, you know, Li Keqiang, when he became premier more than five years ago now, you know, one of the things that was leaked in the cables from WikiLeaks was an account of a U.S. diplomat asking him about, you know, GDP numbers. And Li Keqiang said, you know what? I don't really look at the GDP numbers. I look at three different things. And I can't remember all of them, but one is electricity consumption and one is freight and shipping. And so I think that to me, I mean, that's just a good analogy for numbers in China across the board. Basically, most numbers are going to be wrong or or wrong is probably the wrong word to use, but they're not going to be accurate. More than likely, they are going to be inflated and they are going to be massaged. And of course, there's this snowball effect where if you want to release numbers, but one of your competitors already has a certain level and you know that they're lying or that they're massaging their numbers, I mean, you can't tell the truth because if you tell if you tell the truth, you're not going to look as good. Right. And it's just like, what's the point? Right. So I think that it's a bit of a snowball effect and, you know, keeping up with the Joneses to a certain degree, making sure that your face is as of high status as your competitors. But then I think that, you know, in general, there seems to be this idea that numbers are numbers and that we can just kind of massage them. And so my kind of default stance when it comes to numbers is skepticism. And of course, in many ways, like unless you want to take the time to really dive deep and take the time to do an investigation, you're not going to know what the exact truth is. But I think that if your default stance is skepticism when it comes to Chinese numbers, then that'll probably get you pretty far. So should we just factor in the zombies, the Jiangsu, the Navy, the Shijun, and then put a discount on their growth? I mean, particularly (laughs) for you, like techno, you cover stories in China tech, and you probably have to worry whether the numbers you put on your website are true or not, or you have to throw some skepticism on top of that. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's basically what we try to do. If we're not sure about something, we make it clear that we're not sure about something. And I think at the end of the day, For us in particular, you know, we don't have the capacity to do investigations, unfortunately. And so I think that a lot of times we have to leave it up to the reader to come to their own conclusion. So, of course, you know, we can report the numbers that the companies give us, but those are the numbers that the companies are giving us and using as promotional material, maybe using that to get investment. But at the end of the day, unless they're a public company in Hong Kong or U.S., and even then, I think that there's still quite a bit of skepticism that you should have. But at least if they're public, then that means that they're under transparency and reporting regulations that are actually really strict. 
so they have to be a lot more careful and they can't just you know throw some ridiculous stuff around but if they're not public then i think that the degree of skepticism should be much higher so is the growth in china currently really real this is really the question that we are trying to explore right or should we just adjust our expectations as consumers or investors or even being people who are watching the business growth in china yeah, I mean, you look at the GDP numbers in China. And again, this is a really good example, I think, in part because the government likes to talk about GDP a lot. But I mean, like, I'm not so sure to what degree the central government massages these numbers. I do know that local governments are notorious for doing so. And so what happens is that the government will give a target and say, okay, this is our target for the year. And for the last few years, it's been about 6.5% GDP growth. But the thing is, for a local government, you know, it's not that difficult to goose these numbers where it comes towards the end of the reporting period or the end of the year and you just make some, you know, willy-nilly investments or you get some projects going, you put those numbers on your books under GDP, under economic growth, and then you file them. And then whether or not the project actually starts, whether or not the project actually finishes, doesn't really matter because you've gotten your numbers. And so I think that if we look at numbers across the board, I mean, again, I don't know to what degree the central government is kind of massaging some of this stuff. I mean, they probably are. But local governments are really the worst when it comes to that because government officials, their livelihood is at stake. If they don't meet their numbers, well, they're not going to get that promotion or they might get demoted. And it's a big, big problem if you're a career bureaucrat. So when we look at measures of growth, it's kind of, again, difficult to take these numbers at face value. I tend to trust, you know, third party statistics a lot more than I do official numbers. That's actually very reminiscent of one of my math professors who eventually became an investment banker and teaching bankers how to look at numbers. He was telling me that the best way to actually cook a GDP up is basically have a lot of internal transactions yeah. between government agencies. So your GDP number still looks very big and the percentage growth is there, but the reality actually, there's nothing. It's just left hand paying, right hand exactly. at that point in time. So you really can't tell to the GDP from that. So John, many thanks for coming on the show and thank you for having this conversation earlier and we decided to change this story into talking about numbers and narratives in China and I hope our audience actually enjoyed this conversation. So in closing, can you recommend anything recently that made an impact to your work and personal life? Yeah, I mean, so I would say that a few different books that have uh, really gotten me thinking. So one is Noah Yuval Harari's most recent book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. It's a very fast read. He writes very concisely and very, very clearly. And it's also broken up into some really small chunks. And so I think it's, it's really interesting and kind of summarizes some of the points that he's made in his previous books, but also adds on some stuff. And then Ray Dalio's Principles, which I'm sure, you know, your, your listeners have probably heard uh, thousands of times, but I just started listening to it. And I think that what I was really amazed at is, you know, while on the one hand, he is Wall Street, he is, you know, playing the markets, but he's also very down to earth. It's not one of those things like, hey, I'm going to sell you on, you know, how to make money. The entire book is just what's the best way to look at your life? What's the best way to structure your life? And I think that for me, at least, it resonated very strongly because there are certain things that... I could be doing better. And, you know, this is a really good look at, uh, at how that can be done. And I think in addition to that, I would also recommend Ray Dalio's new book called Guide to Big Debt Crisis, which actually talks about how financial crises are being analyzed in Bridgewater, which is the company. You can actually get the book for free in digital. In fact, I actually bought the physical copies because they actually break it down so that I can actually analyze and think about numbers when big crises actually happen and usually there are certain signs that you can look out for and he actually analyzed all the crises from the 1920s 
to today as well. So, John, how do my audience find you? The best place is probably technode.com. That's kind of where I am. I've been publishing a little bit more these days. Also, of course, LinkedIn and Twitter. So on Twitter, it's at knows nothing. And then LinkedIn, it's just my name. And this episode of the show is co-produced by myself and Carol In, who has actually joined me as my new producer and has been editing the past few episodes. And you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and of course, Google Play in the US market. And please give us a five-star reviews on iTunes Store or a star on Overcast and Pocket Cast. And of course, most importantly, tweet me your feedback. I also want to thank some of my listeners for actually reaching out to me recently and trying to give me suggestions for speakers and we'll do our best to accommodate those requests. So once again, John, many thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks again for having me.